Hello from the Financial Times in London. I'm Andrew Hill, Management Editor, and this is News in Focus, where we offer our insights into the stories that matter. Caroline Criado Perez won the latest Financial Times and McKinsey Business Book of the Year Award in 2019 with her book Invisible Women, Exposing Data Bias in a World Designed for Men. The book explores how designers and developers have persistently excluded or played down women in the data they use. It also looks at the consequences for women and for society as a whole of using men as the default model. She came into the FT's New York studio late last year to talk to me about the book and the impact it's had on researchers and planners, as well as the media. So, Caroline, tell me a little bit about the three conclusions of your work that you think are most relevant, particularly to the business audience. Mm -hmm. So the first one is a shift in perspective, and it's really important. And that is to not assume that women need fixing, that the way men are doing things is the right way, and that if women are not doing it in the same way, that there's something wrong with the women. That is to assume that the male version is the default version rather than simply the male version. And the problem with that is it leads to all sorts of ill-advised attempts to address the problem in ways that don't really work. So it's what I call the Henry Higgins effect. Henry Higgins being from My Fair Lady, who tried to train a flower girl to appear at a very high class ball. And at some point in the musical, he says, why can't a woman be more like a man? And that seems to be at the heart of a lot of workplace initiatives to try to address things like the promotion gender gap and the pay gap of giving women training in confidence and giving women training in negotiation. And actually, there's a lot of evidence to suggest that women are asking for pay rises. They're just less likely to get them. But another additional point there is some interesting studies on things like perceptions of intelligence, where women tend to assess their intelligence accurately. But men of average intelligence think that they're more intelligent than two thirds of people, which is adorable, but not a great way to go around structuring your businesses. So that's the first one is do not assume that the way men are doing things is necessarily the correct way and that we need to train women to be more like men. The second one, which is really the fundamental one and the most important one, is collect sex disaggregated data before you do anything. And that is because... We haven't been collecting data on women and we have therefore been disadvantaging women and exposing women to risk and sometimes to fatal risk. For example, using a 50th percentile car crash test dummy, which means that women are much more likely to die if they're in a car crash. So that's number two, nice and simple. And the third one really has to come before number two. So I've kind of done this in the wrong order. But the third one is really to focus on teams rather than individuals. Again, a perspective shift. And the reason that that shift is so important is that when you're thinking about teams rather than individuals, when you're trying to fill jobs or decide who to promote, it becomes much clearer why you need diversity. Rather than thinking, Bob, he's such a great guy, we should definitely give him this job, thinking about the fact that, well, everyone else on the team is already called Bob. They're probably, sorry, Bob, much as you're a great guy, we have a Sheila-shaped gap that we need to fill, so we should probably hire her. So that's a very important part of it, and it has a huge impact on the sex-disaggregated data aspect because the people who are in the room who are deciding, you know, even before you decide to collect the data... What is the problem you're trying to solve that you want to collect data in order to solve? So that's going to be dictated by who's in the room. And then, of course, 
what data you choose to collect to solve that problem. And even something as sort of seemingly gender neutral as what are the questions you're going to ask to collect that data will all be determined by who the people are who are making all these decisions. And they may not know the best way to elicit that data. They may not know what is the right data to collect for this problem. And of course, they may have a very male biased attitude to what the problem is. As you've written and said, there's a huge embedded institutional bias here. How optimistic are you that organisations, companies, governments, policymakers, having seen the vast amount of evidence that you've put together to point this out will be able to take action because there's a sort of inbuilt inertia here which is essentially one of your points. Well I feel pretty optimistic about it because most people when they have read the book the main reaction is how did I never notice this before and that's really the key. The inertia really comes from people just not being aware that this is happening. I didn't notice it you know we all have this bias Men have this bias, women have this bias also, because we all live in this world that uses male as the default. So I feel optimistic that when people recognise that this is happening, they recognise that it's a problem and they want to be able to change it. And also, because it's a fairly easy solution, collecting sex disaggregated data is not a difficult thing to do. We know how to do it. We just have to do it. You know, I've had so many people getting in touch with me to say that they are changing the way they're doing their research or they're going back to the beginning on their research because they've realised they haven't been doing it, you know, in a way that accounts for women. One guy got in touch with me who is an Alzheimer's researcher who told me he realised after having read the book that all the clinical data sets he was being sent used male as the default. And so he went and undid something like 260 pages of code and redid them using female as the default, which is actually how it should be because data tends to be presented in alphabetical order. So it's fascinating that he's been sent these data sets out of alphabetical order. But I think, again, really hammers home the point that this is just an unconscious bias because it's just not really credible to suggest that there's a bunch of misogynists, you know, secretly reordering the clinical data sets to make male the default in a female dominated disease on top of everything else. So, yeah, I feel pretty optimistic. And I guess one other ground for optimism might be, although we haven't seen this as yet, prompt wholesale change in business, is that there is an opportunity here. You address some of the products that could be designed if people were thinking in a less default male way. Is that something that you begin to see since your book came out, that the products are now being rethought or product design is being rethought? I don't think we're there yet, but I guess they've got quite a long lead time. So (laughs) it'll be a bit soon for products to be coming out that suddenly addressed all these issues. I actually hope that having won this prize will make a difference because the people who are going to be making the investment and funding decisions are still very heavily male dominated. And you still hear so many stories of women being told that their product idea is niche because it's something for women. When product ideas that are developed for men are never seen as niche because we don't label them as for men. We just label them as gender neutral because we see men as the default gender neutral. So I would hope that the prominence that this would give it within the business community will wake up a lot of people who are making funding decisions to the fact that they have this bias and that it's ridiculous to suggest that a product that will serve 51% of the population is niche. And hopefully change will start to happen as a result of that. 
Do you think some companies are nervous because they've seen the backlash against companies that have designed products for women, probably in misguided ways, but they've seen the backlash and they think we have to be completely gender neutral, therefore, about how we design things? Yeah, it's a problem. Business has created a rod for its own back by being so patronising in the past. The obvious one being the Bic for Her that was developed, which was basically just a pink pen. So, you know, there is some trust to be regained from women, absolutely. But I think the rewards are so huge, it's worth doing. And I think also women are really crying out for things to be designed that actually fit them and actually serve their needs. And the backlash is generally directed at the patronising type of design where the assumption is if we make it pink and make it a bit less high tech, but also more expensive, let's not forget, that will serve female design you know of course there's going to be backlash to that because it's incredibly patronizing and infuriating to pay more for a product that is worse you've had some quite severe backlash against some of the previous campaigns that you fought in this area how do you now respond to that kind of inevitable reaction to some of the things that you're explaining well interestingly i've had very little backlash to this book it's been the least backlash i've ever received And I think it's because the book is so fundamentally, obviously true. And the fact that we aren't collecting data on women and women are dying as a result of that is so clearly unjust that you have to be incredibly close-minded and unfair-minded to have a problem with it. And, you know, most people just aren't. You know, you can't argue with the fact that we should be designing cars that aren't more dangerous for women to drive. You know, no one wants their mum to die from a heart attack because it was misdiagnosed by the doctor because the doctor hasn't been trained to spot heart attacks in women and we haven't developed diagnostic tests that will diagnose heart attacks, which may be mechanically different in women. So I've been really pleased, actually, with the reaction to the book because it's been exactly what I wanted, that people have just taken it in good faith and not seen it as this sort of secret attempt to undermine men because it's not really about that. And it's also not about saying that men are bad people because one of the things I think is very important that people take away from the book is that to be biased is to be human and women are biased as well as men. We are all participating in this bias. We are all participating in this default male. And the reason I think it's so important to emphasise that is that when we talk about things like sexism, when we talk about biases, people can get quite defensive because they think that they're being blamed and they're being told that they're bad people. And I'm just not interested in blaming anyone or talking about who is a bad person, who is a good person, because that doesn't fix anything. You know, what I care about is fixing this. You know, I think that people can see that that's what is going on. Obviously, you know, there are some people who haven't read the book and were engaged with the book who just sort of think it's more evidence of how unfairly the world treats white men these days. But I can't really do anything about someone who won't actually engage with the argument. I'm not that interested in them because they are a minority. And the people that matter, you know, the people who are in a position to take decisions generally are engaging with the ideas. And it's been really great to see. Perhaps you could just give us an example of something where there's been a clear bias built into a system which perhaps falls outside the business world where a consumer, an ordinary person, might have suffered. So there's actually a pretty good example that I opened the book with, which is snow clearing in Sweden. Now, 
that obviously immediately sounds ridiculous. How can snow clearing be biased? Snow clearing has got nothing to do with people. It's just clearing snow off the roads. Well, actually, it's got a lot to do with people because people are using the roads and using the pavements. And it turns out there are average sex differences in the way men and women travel. So women are more likely to take public transport and they're therefore more likely to be walking as well as they change from bus to train or whatever. And they also do a different type of travel called trip chaining, which is basically lots of short interconnected trips as they complete their unpaid and their paid work together. So, you know, dropping the kids off at school before they go into work, maybe picking up some groceries on the way home. Men do a much more simple travel pattern, which is basically they're more likely to drive and they go in and out of work. Just a very simple commute. And so women are more likely to be on pavements and local roads because schools aren't in the business district, for example. And men are more likely to be on the major road arteries. And this town in Sweden, Karlskoga, realised that they were benefiting typical male travel over typical female travel because they were clearing the major road arteries first and then the local roads and sidewalks. And so they decided to switch it up because they realised, well, it won't cost us any more money and it's probably harder to walk or push a buggy through three inches of snow than it is to drive a car through three inches of snow. What they didn't realise is that it would end up saving them substantial amounts of money off their healthcare bill because, yes, it is, it turns out, much harder to push a buggy through three inches of snow. And the vast majority of those who were being admitted to accident and emergency for injuring themselves in icy conditions were pedestrians. And women made up the majority of those pedestrians. And also women tended to suffer from the most severe injuries. And, you know, the cost was fairly substantial. So the cost of admittance to accident and emergency for injuring yourself in icy conditions over a single winter season was three times the cost of the winter road maintenance. And so just by basically collecting sex disaggregated data and then designing policy around that, they ended up saving themselves a whole bunch of money that they hadn't saved before because they just did it the way they'd always done it. And the thing that I think is really interesting about that example is, again, it highlights how this is not a deliberate conspiracy against women. There's no way the town planners, when they originally came up with the snow clearing schedule, were trying to make women fall over and hurt themselves. They just did what they thought was the right thing to do. And the likelihood is they were all men back then. And that was what made sense for them. That was how they travelled. And it just didn't occur to them that some people travel in a different way. Which is why this brings me back to my three issues. You know, you need diversity in the team. If they had had women in the team, this might never have happened. Collecting sex disaggregated data. And also not assuming that the way you do things as a man is the way that humans do things. Great example. Thanks, Caroline, and good luck spreading these ideas more widely. Don't forget, if you missed our recent episodes on the new mood of optimism in Greece, how telecoms operators failed in their bid for world domination, or the US-Iran dispute, you can subscribe and listen on all the usual podcast platforms. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., 
Corrientes experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's Corient.com. Did you know the Capital Ideas podcast now has a new monthly edition hosted by Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin? Through the words and experiences of investment professionals, you'll discover who was their best mentor, what's a mistake they made that changed their approach, and how do they find their next great idea? Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc.